This is Mouth Media Network, the business of being heard. Hi, I'm Tristan Hoy, co-CTO and co-founder of Style Arcade. And although I'm a relative newcomer to fashion and, and fashion tech, what I really love and what I've loved learning about is how wonderfully complex merchandise planning and, and buying is. It's like, it's a really exciting space and it's one of the, the deepest technical rabbit holes I've ever been down. From New York City, you're listening to Fashion Is Your Business, covering the intersection of innovation and business in the fashion industry. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the show. So glad you're here. I'm Mark Rako, one of your hosts. Also uh, with all of us is Mr. Pavan Ball. Hey, Pavan. Hey, yo. What's going on, Mark? Yo, Happy yo, yo. Monday morning. Hey, yo. You should sell T-shirts. Hey, yo. That should be like your... One of your t-shirts there. I like that. Good. Uh, and joining us as a guest host on the mic, it is uh, Simeon Siegel, the uh, Managing Director, Senior Retail and E-Commerce Analyst at BMO Capital Markets. But we just call him Simeon. Uh, I was about to say, that for a mouthful? <laughs> <laughs> I know. I, know. Uh, well, I don't know what's better, though, my actual name or the title. It's like you couldn't just call me Jack. Jack. So, Jack, <laughs> welcome. Well, good to have you on the host side, Jack. <laughs> Simeon, welcome. Great to be here, guys. All right, uh, and of course, uh, Pavan Ball. Uh, Pavan, I, I, I think it's it, we haven't really talked about this much, but uh, uh, since since you kind of been uh, more regularly back on the show, uh, you got some other things going on. You're uh, you got this cool company, uh, Bellwether uh, Culture. What, 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 tell me about that. What's what, <laughs> yeah. what's going on? <laughs> so, so yeah, I guess uh, over the last year and a half or so, um, been building Bellwether Culture from creative work uh, to consulting, and a lot of our work is uh, based on uh, again putting people in the right room with each other and the right conversations. That's it. Awesome. And of course, enough about all of us. To our guest uh, Tristan. Tristan, welcome to the show. All the way. Where are you right now? I know you're across the pond, but where exactly? Sydney, Sydney. Oh no, yeah. the, the world, like the the world yeah. across the world, across the world, not the pond. I don't know what I was yeah. thinking. Well, thank you for dialing in from uh, from Sydney. I've been in Sydney. Pubbin's been in Sydney. Simeon, have you been in Sydney? In my uh, in my mind, I've watched a lot of TV. <laughs> <laughs> heard it's a lovely place uh, I, but, uh, no, sadly. I actually was supposed to be in Sydney later this month um, for online retailer and uh, obviously that's that's not happening uh, in person but uh, I love that place I, I really can't wait to go back so thank you you know that that scary uh, Google thing that tells you where you traveled and kind of all the different times you've circled around the circled around the country I just got my email for the last half a year, and I'm just staring at this thing. I've managed three blocks away, so the idea. Of <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man, my, my wife and I just looked at all the places that we are able to go, and I think it's as Americans, we're allowed to travel to like eight countries. <laughs> Max. <laughs> well, we're actually locked in, so yeah. Australians can't leave the country. Yeah. Crazy. It's pretty, pretty, pretty crazy. All right, so let's get to it, shall we? Uh, I like to just uh, sort of set the course here. You know, one of the one of the things is 
Australians have been uh, really getting on the bandwagon in terms of e-commerce and in terms of uh, fashion technology in recent years, mm -hmm. playing very, very fast catch-up. But, um, but in some cases, it's been a step behind of where things are in the United States and the, the, you know, the, the, the distance is closing very quickly. But what you're doing with Style Arcade doesn't doesn't seem to be echoing something that's already happened that seems to be its own cool innovation the way you guys are going about it can can you talk about how it is that you were able to where did the thinking forward come from how did you jump ahead a little bit what inspired the idea of style arcade well i mean this is originally my co-founder and and ceo Mikala wessel's idea and and she's an industry veteran. Uh, she's been doing merchandise buying and planning for over a decade. And, and it was just continuously in, in every single organization that she was deployed in, continuously butting up against the limitations of technology and just ridiculous um, manual processes around merchandise buying and, and planning. And, and she just thought, why can't this be automated and and why why are so many of the buyers and planners essentially just data monkeys instead of being strategic decision makers and uh it was quite an interesting process process discovering why that hadn't that problem hadn't really been solved before and and it's a it's a very deeply deeply technical one Actually, just uh, start from the beginning in terms of mm -hmm. like explaining out i know you have a couple different products but really just uh, dialing it back and saying, okay, this is Style Arcade, this is what we do. Yeah, sure. So Style Arcade has two main products. Uh, we're, we're focused on, on fashion. We, we do serve like other verticals, but really fashion is where we excel. We help fashion retailers understand their kind of past performance of products and then make decisions about uh, where to invest their money in the future and, and kind of planning out their, their future ranges. So it's, it's really, it's, you know, profit is the goal and, and product is the driver. And, and we, we help our, our retailers, um, you know, grow essentially. Yeah. And for those folks that don't work in merchandising or touch that aspect of the buying process for retailers, um, what is the general kind of, um, you know, process or flow that folks have traditionally been accustomed to? Yeah. So, well, Traditionally, merchandise buying and, and planning is at the end of the season, you'll do a, a post-season analysis. You'll look at, okay, what were the winners? What were the losers? And, and like, where do the adjustments need to be made uh, as well as like, um, you know, what new segments could we move into? And, and then you take the, you take the, the revenue and, and the profit from the previous season, and then you invest that in inventory for for your next season and and you want to you want to balance your investment across every axis of your range so whether that's category or or, or color or, or style or, or occasion um, and as well as size it's it's getting that getting that balance and, and aligning your investment to to demand so it's that it's that kind of cycle of sell analyze buy sell analyze buy and from what I understand, most of this I'm stuff sure is done on like Excel sheets and uh, kind of facsimile. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So Tristan, how do you think about the, the Delta here? I think we're watching 
man versus or person versus machine. This is like the, the matrix all over again. But as you think about the science versus the art, fashion has always been so tied intrinsically to that merchant prince. Now technology comes along and says there's actually math to this that might make it a lot easier. How do you mesh the two? Well, I don't, I don't think you can, you can ever really uh, negate the, the talent of a good buyer who, who has that instinct and, and has, uh, just has a knack for, for spotting trends. Um, but unfortunately, as in any d- discipline, you, you can't really scale you can't really scale that kind of talent. So as this, uh, you know, this up and coming retailer who's doing exceptionally well and has just really found an amazing niche, uh, as they start to, okay, expand into different categories and start increasing the, the, the width of their range and the depth of their buyers, you're going to need to bring in, in more people. And that's where, um, that's where technology can help standardize the process and and uh, and reduce the amount of manual work that's just arranging data, so that so that the stuff that you do hire can focus on feeding um, useful information back to the back to the buyers. You know the I'll say like a huge catalyst to uh, technology uh, being required to to aid this process is just the breakdown of of season cycles, right? So before you had Fashion Week, uh, which would happen in the fall and the spring for the following season, the buyers would kind of um, mimic that calendar to support the demand that was upcoming. Mm-hmm. But with with digital breaking down uh, those cycles, there's you know the introduction of maybe three or four other seasons. Fashion Weeks aren't happening this year, and they're still very fluid. They're fully digital. Um, it's it's almost like a see now, see now, buy now process uh all across the globe and uh you know the the job of a a buyer it's just drastically different and way more moving than it was before yeah totally and the old paradigm of we do this massive crunch for for two weeks you know three four times a year just isn't going to cut it with uh when you're doing so many different buyers but um, looking for even even further out, and some retailers are already doing this. It is like small batch experimentation, where you'll actually you'll you'll invest in many different styles, but do really like small investments, and maybe just run them in your flagship store. Say uh, a Zara will do this, and then they will back the winners. and And it's that's really a scientific approach. That's taking the approach of we don't know what's going to work. So let's have a conversation with our customers and with the market and, and, and figure out what they want. And, and the, the number of buying decisions that you end up making as a result is like four or five fold. And, and the, the technology of old and the processes of old just, just cannot sustain that kind of rapid decision making. Can you dig into that a little bit more? Because I think that the other corollary is it used to be that the retailers or the brands would tell the consumers what they should buy, what they should wear to basically bring them into their own fantasy. Now you brought up Zara. It's whole market. It's the brands acknowledging that the consumer's in control. So how does that change the idea of buying? How does that change planning and thinking through? I mean, it's much easier to say, well, I'm going to tell you which sweater, therefore I'll just scale that up as opposed to now being acknowledging the balance of power has shifted. Yeah. 
I think, I think that it's always been, it has always been this way. It's just that retailers didn't have the means to, to have that conversation. And, and with such a, a heavy seasonal focus, it's, you know, that, that the, the cadence of that conversation is really, well, what worked well last year? Well, let's maybe make some slightly different decisions. And meanwhile, your customer base has moved. And, and I think that another thing that's accelerating this is, is that the, the targeting of your, your customer base is, is so much more fine grained. And, and so rather than just setting up a, a shop and, you know, if you build it, they will, they will come. It is, all right, we are going to target a person that, that looks like this, does this, is interested in these things, frequents these social things, likes these competitors. And, and so there's just, I, I think it's, it's mainly a, a technology shift and many, many, many different technology shifts that are, that are opening up that that conversation and and with the shift to to online you have a wealth of of data that you you never had before and you know in the old uh bricks and mortar retail era you don't know who's walking into your shop you don't know how long they're spending you don't know what they looked at but then walked away from and so there's just this wealth of information now as particularly as we shift online um, that just wasn't, wasn't available before. So I, I think, I think it really is the online world that's actually driving a lot of the changes in the way merchandise buying and planning as a whole is operating. Yeah, that makes sense. Now you mentioned Zara and, uh, and also the, the opportunity of maybe even getting, uh, the selection pretty localized. So maybe a New York store would have uh, different merchandise or the way that they even display the merchandise from, you know, uh, a store in Spain, for instance. Um, mm -hmm. Are you finding that your clientele then, given that, is mostly in that fast fashion world? Um, or are you also seeing luxury uh, mimic this same model? Yeah, we cater primarily to fast fashion. We do have some uh, some brands that have like more of a, a higher higher price point. Uh, but the, the luxury fashion business is, it's quite a different business model. You, you make 80% of your revenue from 5% of your customers. And whereas like fast fashion is like, that's, you know, that's a very different ratio. And, and so, um, yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be comfortable, uh, commenting on what's happening in, in the luxury world because we, we don't really play in that space and I haven't had great exposure to it. Can you give some examples maybe of uh, what type of retailers that you're servicing uh, currently, if you're able to give names and things of that nature? And, and also understand that um, a lot of our audience is uh, in the Western Hemisphere, so between North America and Europe. We predominantly serve uh, businesses that are turning over usually $20 million a year or more. And uh, we have a lot of, of pure play online retailers and... Um, I think of think of a, a brand that's quite popular in in the states. So, have you guys heard of Meshki? I have, but uh, through, yeah. through my my dealings in Australia versus yeah, yeah. So that I mean that's been you know worn by quite a few U.S. celebrities. Mm -hmm. 
So does that does that give you a give you a picture? I mean, we do omni omni channel retailers as well, uh, but a, a large portion of our customers are that you know twenty million a year annual turnover and and uh, purely online. And many, although some of our omni-channel retailers are purely online at the moment. <laughs> yeah. And you mentioned scale. Does, does it change as you get higher? So if you start at around 20, what happens at 200? What happens at a billion? Like as you think about what dynamic is different for the large businesses that have to do this repeatedly versus the ones that are emerging success stories. Yeah, I, I, th I think that... Again, the emerging success stories, uh, there is a survivorship bias. So the emerging success stories that you hear about are, are usually the ones that are, are backed by uh, either talent or just brilliant luck. And, and so the ones that then transition to the, the larger size, you know, 200 million, a, a billion a year annual turnover, this, is really, this really comes down to how you scale an organization. And so... This is where you need, you know, you may have hundreds of, of buyers and planners of varying qualities and varying experience. And, and even the ones who, who are more sophisticated, they'll have different opinions about how to approach things. And so to, make, to get predictable results from your merchandise buying and, and planning, it really is about standardizing processes and, and minimizing the amount of, of, of manual effort and that that requires investment in, in technology and systems. Are you seeing a change in product category? I mean, you've got three out of the four of us here wearing t-shirts. So I work at a <laughs> and I'm like not wearing a jacket is a huge win right now, but it's still a button down. <laughs> but does the Delta and the shift to athleisure and athletic as a category, does that change the dynamic here? Is it easier to order a certain amount of t-shirts and sweatpants than it is to think about various different elements of fashion for going out? In terms of broader industry trends, I think everyone saw that there would be a, a shift to more casual wear as, as people were uh, were you know spending a lot of their time at, at home. Uh, the explosive growth in athleisure uh, was like that that kind of took us by surprise, and and I think that in in terms of other trends, we're, we're seeing we're seeing investment in fewer styles so so the, the retailers will will like will pick less styles to invest in because we're, we're looking at lower volumes here and so fewer styles and also a higher a higher price point and you know i, I see that in, in in sydney so overall the, the the category of say you know evening wear dinner wear is massively down but what people are people are spending more money per item so that's been really interesting to watch. And so, but, but that's kind of like the pendulum swinging in the opposite direction. It was like, we're stuck at home, we're uh, forced to wear casual wear, then it's like, oh, well, let's go and exercise. And that's literally the only opportunity I have to be seen by other people. So I'm gonna wear the best athleisure stuff available to Jesus, I haven't gone out for ages. Let's make it an occasion. And so, so that, that's kind of, I mean, that's what I'm, that's the mentality that I'm, I, I believe is kind of driving some of these um, purchasing behaviors. So check this out. For more than 15 years and more than 160,000 customers, 
the number one SMS marketing software, industry leader Easy Texting, has set the standard for business texting platforms. So it's a cloud-based self-service SaaS platform, and it's a top 20 best product for marketers, and it allows businesses of all sizes to reach and engage their mobile audiences. They've sent 5 billion messages to their customers, yes, but what can really move the needle for you is this. Texting delivers 600% more engagement than email. Now, what could you do with 600% more engagement? Look, 90% of people read new messages within 30 minutes, right? And text messages, 134% more likely to be read than emails. So when an online boutique wanted to send their existing customers coupons and information about upcoming sales, they wanted an easy-to-use text marketing platform, and they used easy texting. 89% of customers prefer messaging to communicate with businesses. 77% of consumers have a more positive impression of companies that text. So when a clothing store with a pop-up shop wanted to increase store traffic as well as tell past customers about new arrivals, they used easy texting. In-store traffic increased within just a few hours of their first text. They had positive communications with customers and they saved time. So you come to fashion as your business for valuable business insights and strategy, right? This one is a game changer. Texting allows you to facilitate scheduling, enable staffing, promote products and services, and notify customers, and the big kahuna provide an excellent customer experience. So, Fashion Is Your Business is going to hook you up. Easy Texting is offering a free trial to listeners of the Fashion Is Your Business podcast. Just text FASHION to 858-585. Again, that's FASHION to 858-585. Message and data rates may apply for this recurring message program. You know, Tristan, I'm, I'm curious to hear about kind of where you are um, as a company. So what I mean by that is, you know, how much market penetration do you have um, in, the, in the local market over there in Australia which is, of course, it's a continent, so it's a massive market. Yeah. Um, and then, uh, again, what are, what are kind of the, the growth plans going forward? Whether are you going to incubate there for a little bit longer or do you plan on uh, moving to new markets? Yeah, so I mean, we've got about 50 brands now across Australia and, and New Zealand. Mm-hmm. And uh, we are looking at, at moving into the U.S. and, and U.K. this year. And I think the interesting thing is that COVID is making that easier. It's, it's easier to have a conversation with someone on the other side of the continent who isn't expecting an office visit. And so uh, I think that our, our strategy maybe, maybe a year or so ago was like, okay, we need to pick a, we need to pick a, a, a location and, and set up office and, and get some like lo- local, spin up some local sales resources. And uh, and what we're finding is that that's not that's not necessary, and 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 COVID is helping that, and and we're able to tackle multiple locations at at, at the same time. And and I think what we our, our plan is 
once we see significant uptake in a particular location, we may follow that with a, with a local resource or, or setting up a local office. Uh, but for now, we're, we're physically staying here. Uh, but yeah, we are, we are actively uh, pursuing customers in, in the States and in the UK. And what about the differences in those customers? So what are you seeing in terms of the mentality of how people shop, when they shop, how, however it would be relevant for your business? Okay, so relatively speaking, Australia is a, is a monoculture in terms of fashion. So there are differences. You do need to buy differently for the different locations. But generally speaking, if you, if you run a particular style in, uh, in, in Melbourne, it's going to run well in, in the other capital cities, for, for example. And, and you, know, you, may, you may tailor what you're arranging depending on you know, whether it's inner city versus, uh, versus outer city. But the, the differences in, in how you range across different locations is, is much more in, in the States, definitely. So you can, have, you can have two stores that are a few kilometers away from each other and, and they're selling to a completely different customer. So I, yeah, I think, I think the diversity of the customer is greater in, in the States. Does that and make so, your product um, more powerful for a US customer? Uh, yeah, it absolutely does make it, it, it more powerful. And I've kind of alluded to this before that, you know, the, the challenge of like slicing, slicing your, your sales and, and stock history for hundreds of products across many locations is, is quite difficult. And in our software, the flexibility that you have to analyze and, and arbitrarily cluster your locations and see what was selling, what wasn't selling, um, and and get really down to that kind of granular store level quite easily uh, makes our software very like yeah I would say more more so than powerful but but critical for a for a multi location on uh, bricks and mortar retailer. Yeah, what do you think the ability to plan that you offer? What does that do to promotions and discounts? So from the we're talking about it from the business side. What does the consumer see on this? If you are if you are walking into a, a bricks and mortar store uh, for a, a customer using our platform, the first thing that you'll notice is an absence of like horribly fragmented sizing. So you you walk into a particularly large department stores have this problem. You walk in and there's like thirty two smalls and no mediums and an eleven larges, and and, and that kind of poor poor buying when it comes to the, the, the sizing. Uh, that's something that we really help our, our customers address. And we had, uh, although this is more of in an online setting, we had one of our customers just by using our tool to change the way that, that, sh that she uh, purchased across the sizes, was able to just like pull a lever and just generate 250K worth of extra profit in a quarter. And uh, so that, that kind of stuff is like, is, is really powerful. Uh, Tristan, on that, uh, jumping, uh, uh, piling on that, that particular uh, topic, how are you seeing this as an opportunity to promote sustainability through 
and you know not having to buy access inventory that isn't needed which eventually can be discarded which eventually you know requires more manufacturing than is actually necessary to meet the demands of a brand so how how are you thinking about this not just all oh, that makes sense obviously that's true but it, how is that connected to your messaging or your mission well i think that this is an interesting thing about about fashion retail is that operating sustainably in terms of reducing waste and operating sustainably in terms of running a profitable business with healthy cash flow are, are the same thing. Um, obviously there, I mean, there are other ways to be sustainable, but, but it, it's a, it's a business imperative to, to reduce waste. And, and the fact that that is also um, hugely beneficial for the environment uh, is, is definitely something that, um, that that's catching on. Mm -hmm. Now, what is the approach? You know, uh, I had an opportunity to catch up with Michaela when she was here in New York, I think actually early March or, or late February. And she was talking about, um, I think, the planning to actually start an office in San Francisco or on the West Coast somewhere. Um, obviously, that no longer kind of takes priority now. But what's now? What's the what's the strategy to come into this market specifically? Yeah, it's it's just reaching out to reaching out to brands uh, and making sure that we're targeting targeting the right brands, and so that's a combination of what type of business are they and what technologies are they are they using, and because knowing what technology a, a, a retailer uses tells us a lot about. Uh, their maturity as a as a business and and what kind of challenges we're likely to have during the 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 post sales process and and so that kind of that kind of targeting is is really helping us can you unfold that a little bit more what are you looking at um like are you looking at size of contracts meaning like this software or are you looking at these are tangentially or or can com complement uh what we're doing so we'll we'll attack onto that um what do you mean by that? Okay, so I, I think this is this is a, also a, a focus question. So, you know, we are we are working on some some new features that are specifically targeting Shopify, for example. And so, most of the customers that we are having conversations with in uh, in, in the states and in, and in the UK, they're on they're on Shopify, and and many of them. If they're not a, a pure play, then they have enough of an online presence that our, it is valuable for them to buy our software just for the for the online aspect of their of their business. Does it need to be uh, Shopify Plus um, as a as a marker, or uh, either way, or is it is it more of a revenue uh, marker that you're looking at? Revenue. Mm -hmm. There's this interesting idea that now services are really helping retailers and brands, but by the same token, they're helping their competitors just the same. And in theory, retail historically has always been a zero sum game. Mm -hmm. So as you think about it, you face, do you face any pushback when you go to sign certain brands up or certain retailers up and they look at the fact that you're giving that same pickaxe to the, the person right next to them trying to grab the same dollar? We've had nothing of nothing of the sort i think that the extent to which we can transform the way that they they operate in merchandise buying and planning and and the the amount of pain that we can alleviate it's 
it's not that type of conversation. Whereas, you know, I, I imagine, say, a, a consumer-focused uh, technology that's, say, looking at, uh, you know, being able to take a photo of a product and then upload it to the website and then it recommends stuff that looks the same. And being able to, like, you know, identify different garments and almost give you a replica outfit, that kind of stuff. That like really consumer facing tech, I think is much more sensitive to, to, well, who else are you, who else are you working with? Because we want our, we want our online presence to be special and it's a little less special if, if we look exactly the same as this other business. That's interesting. Yeah. I'm curious to hear about your pricing and how you came across it. Like, can you Talk about the journey of your pricing model and like um, how it uh, how it relates to your your market strategy. It's one of the one of the hard hard problems. Uh, well, certainly we started way too low. <laughs> mm -hmm. Like like As most a, like most folks do. You undervalue yeah, yourself, yeah, right? Yeah, that that that's right. I think that our the, the way the way that we um, work out. The, the pricing is, it really is value-based. And so we look at uh, how, what, what their headcount is, what their, what their revenue is. And, and, and then we kind of work, work out like roughly in a business of this size, what amount of, of profit are we able to, to generate? And, and then we use just a few different business measures to, to approximate that and then come up with a, a, a monthly fee. It's so interesting because also you think about for a business that's so tied to metrics and data, what are you seeing that you can then show? You talked about that 250,000 that you just pull the lever. What are the other yeah. types of, of results that you've seen there that you're able to go back and say, we took you from A to B very clearly? Yeah. So, so buying accuracy. So this is, so and this comes down to like one of my favorite problems in merchandise uh, planning is what is a winner? You know, what is a, what is a winning, not just a winning product, but a winning buy. And, and so like putting the size level, the size level um, sort of decisions aside, it is like as a, as a retailer, you want to have the maximum amount of revenue generated from the minimum amount of deployed working capital. So you, you don't want to have a lot of cash tied up in, in your inventory. And so you want to, if you have say, you know, a hundred, hundred thousand dollars to invest in, in a, a given period in, in terms of your, your inventory, you want to maximize the, not just the amount of revenue that comes back, but how quickly it, it comes back and how quickly it can, it can pay itself off. And so we have encoded some best practice performance measures into our software that, that tells you, you know, what was your hit rate? Like how many, how many products did you buy correctly in terms of the level of investment actually did meet demand. And, and so, you know, we, we can, we can then show like, well, Here's a report of of your uh, of your products from last season, and here's a report of you know three months later, and we can show them the uplift in in buying hit rate. I'm gonna ask a question. You can decide if we if we want it. I'm curious about the competitive landscape. So, how do you view the competitive landscape for what you guys do? 
So as a general fashion analytics tool, uh, we do have quite a few competitors. We've got uh, some companies uh, targeting kind of the, the, the lower end of the market, um, companies like Glue, for example. Uh, we have some local competitors here that have relationships with specific ERPs. Uh, we've got one that's essentially a glorified Excel plugin, um, which is like isn't isn't as crazy as it sounds, given how much of the merchandise buying and planning process actually does operate in Excel. Um, and but where we where we don't really have competitors is when it comes to our advanced sizing analysis. And, and this is, again, what I was saying, like brings many business intelligence stacks to, to their knees. Uh, so we have the only competitor we're aware of is actually Oracle. And so they did, a, uh, they did an, an advanced sizing tool for a large department store here in, in Australia, where it is, where it allowed them to measure what was the rate of sale per size, per style, when in stock in different locations. And what we've done is several steps kind of further ahead from that. And so that's something that we, we really don't, that's a super hard problem to solve at, and, and at scale with a large amount of, of, of data. And I don't know, I mean, Oracle have like a huge amount of resources behind them, so I'm sure they could solve a problem like that. But uh, yeah, you know, we basically built our own uh, data warehouse from the ground up to solve this problem. And, and, and problems Oracle's like your only is your prime competition. That's some good company to be in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it, and it's it's good for us because because then we have Oracle pushing the solution and, and kind of creating that market uh, because, you know, this is a problem that, that you know, we are aware of, uh, you know, with our kind of specialization in, in merchandise planning, we're very close to this problem space. And, and we, we know that there's a, there's a gap in, in what people are doing around sizing. Most retailers don't. Most retailers are, uh, they believe, oh, so no, we don't have a sizing problem. And, and the, the issue is, again, how you define performance. And, and if you have a bad definition of performance at the sizing level, then you, all of your indicators look good and you repeat the same mistakes year after year after year and you don't even know and everything just looks great and it's green and like, yes, we're matching, it's fine. And like, <laughs> so, it, 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 yeah, it, it kind of, you, you continuously understate your fringe sizes. I wonder if deploying your, your solution, Tristan, may give brands a, um, the shake they need to sort of reset the, their, their, their view on actually what is happening and what you were just talking about, you know, just sort of a wake-up call, of, of an alertness to reevaluate exactly that. And, um, that's, that's actually – we certainly do have, have that impact and, and sometimes oh, – like one of my one of my favorite things to do is is to sit in on one of our uh, kind of post sales onboarding meetings where we'll be training the customer and we'll be showing them things about their product range that they didn't even know, and that's when you just hear the wow kind of reaction. But when it comes to the the advanced size curve stuff, 
uh, we're very careful about kind of who we engage with that, and it's and it's retailers that because you, you have to you have to solve. There's much more lower hanging fruit in terms of problems you can solve in in your in your business, and it's certainly a bigger problem at at scale. So. We, we, we target that functionality towards retailers that are the kind of that have reached that level of maturity and, and are ready to take on that kind of next level. So that last point was so interesting. What happens when you give them something that they didn't know, but they don't necessarily want to hear? You've probably been in some really interesting conversations where you're saying the data is suggesting that you're doing this wrong, this retail insanity circle. Don't do that. Yeah. How have, you, how have those conversations gone? Uh... <laughs> Yeah, we've we've had. Uh, I mean, m- mostly mostly it's fine, but yeah, there, there have there have been some some instances where we will butt up against the the, the ego of a uh, of a particular planner or, or buyer who's very sure that they they know what they're doing. And, well, not uh, just not just an ego. It's it's also insecu- job insecurity, right? So, what what if yeah. they're viewing this as a threat to their existence within the company? Work. Yeah, and and this is this is super interesting because we we aren't a threat to merchandise planners. We automate like ninety percent of, or not ninety percent. We automate maybe seventy five percent of the time they spend. We do not automate seventy five percent of their job. All right, and so, and and so, what what we are able to do is to help uh, help merchandise planners change from data analysts into decision makers. And so now, in, instead of the the merchandise planner rocking up to a meeting and they've been up all night and they're like eyes are glazed over and they say, "I've got the answer." You know, they can they can actually come to a meeting with four or five different views on the problem, and and they can start driving the conversation, and and so it allows them to be much more of a of a strategic kind of uh, resource. And and I think that once once that clicks, that's when we can like you know really really win a, a, a power user and a, and a champion within the customer. All right, Tristan, uh, I feel like that's been a, a, a wonderful journey uh, through Style Arcade and everything that, that you're about and the, the, the journey that even the company's been on. Uh, so a uh, great moment to sort of switch tracks and go go personal, as they say, and uh, with a round sure. of off-the-grid off questions right after this. Now here comes a twist. I'm going to share serious tips, challenges, and solutions. I'm 36 years old. I founded 21 companies. I'm an Inc. 500 awardee. One word. Entrepreneur. This is Naked Entrepreneur. It happened to me not once, not twice, three times. This is going to happen. Write it down. With Eli Ostriker. Right now, let me focus on my logo. Focus on the website. You f***ing out of your mind. Are you crazy? Rated R. Listen, it's a podcast. Naked Entrepreneur. Off the grid 
which fashion is your business? Tristan, uh, we like to ask, uh, kind of look at the human side, get a little bit more personal with off-the-grid questions, which are a little, little uh, frankly, off-the-grid, a little more personal in nature. Uh, uh-huh. we, we, there's three hosts here, so uh, we're all going to clamor for the chance to ask the first question or, or maybe avoid it. I'm not sure. We solved that problem with a spin of our huge wheel of grid destiny, prize wheel of sorts, but where the, pri- the prize, I guess, is to maybe if you don't get picked. But anyway... Uh, I'm going to spin that wheel and see whose question comes up first. Here we go. Big spin of the wheel. And the first question comes from Pavan. It wasn't a hard enough spin, Mark. I saw that. Well, oh, I know. <laughs> like, listen, little... if I'm on the prices right, I'm hanging off of those things. Yeah. You know what I mean? I'm, <laughs> I'm pulling it down with all my might. That was bullshit. Yeah. Really? Um, really? I thought it was perfect. <laughs> um, all right. So, so Tristan, I mean, uh, as you're looking to new markets, you know, of course, your approach is going to have to adapt. Um, you know, your, your product may even adapt uh, as you know it. I'm wondering in your personal life how, you know, I know Aussies love to travel. And when they travel, they're gone. Like they're off that continent for months mm-hmm. at a time, you know, and uh, exploring everything and coming back. I'm wondering that in, in your personal uh, travels. Uh, what has been the most dramatic impact or change that you've had personally because of it? When I visited uh, Morocco and I stayed in... What year are we talking in, about? Oh, 2016 or 17, something like that. And, uh, and I, I stayed in a this beautiful penthouse apartment overlooking the sea like the waves were crashing against the rocks like it was up up on like a, a cliff and uh and it was in this little fishing and, and and surfing village uh in the kind of southwestern quarter and but but being there for for a month i got to see how how the locals kind of interacted with each other and 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 with with tourists and uh, and it was a yeah, just it was an Arab community, and the people were so beautiful and and so kind and 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 open and and even if because uh, I did I spoke you know neither Arabic nor nor French and and so even when there was a language barrier, th- there was like we, we were still able to acknowledge each other and and I I kind of although I was able to talk to some of them, I, I just got to, just got to rec- start recognizing some of the, the locals and, and just learning about how they, how they live and, and the kind of the, the different structure of their society made Australia look completely different when I came back here. And, and I realized how much of the way that our society is are structured is arbitrary it's arbitrary and, and, and people who never leave are just, they, they don't realize even what they're taking for granted. Thank you. For All right. That. Yeah, that was very, very nice answer. Thank you. All right. Another spin of the wheel. Let me, let me give it some real pull, some real hopper. <laughs> I, I don't want to be accused of cheating again. Here we go. And, uh, and uh, nope, nope. Went right past Pavin, it's Simeon. I was blocking out. Um, that was a very, uh, very interesting in- answer. Um, I am going to, because I'm second, I'm going to sneak in two 
my fur oh is the, the you know, guy, a guy shows up on mic that one time that's it, <laughs> that's it. <laughs> in the spirit of us talking before about moving expanding traveling getting more global other than perhaps this one as you start as you deal more and more with americans what's the most annoyingly american question you've gotten that would be my my first and then the second as kind of an out you mentioned at the beginning of this you're relatively new to the fashion world so thinking about kind of a taking a, a jump off from my very first question with Puvin, what was the most interesting piece of fashion you have ever worn <laughs> <laughs> okay um all right so would you like fries of- with that <laughs> well, I love that question because he's wearing our our interview uniform right now, the T-shirt apparently. So yeah, yeah, yeah. So there were there were kind of two things that were I, I found I found really interesting. Uh, well, just really really odd about and not just not just Americans, but this is also a Canadian thing as well. Excuse my reach. Oh, part of my reach, or excuse my reach. Part of my reach. That is something I've never heard in in my life, and it was, it was always, it always seemed like quite over the top. It's like that's well, fine. You need to do your thing and grab whatever you're grabbing. Just just do it. Don't don't mind me. Or you just say, oh, excuse me, or something like that. It was like that very specific phrase would just be repeated again and again and again. <laughs> and you you stayed you stayed you spent some time up in Canada, right? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, it was about uh, two and a half years bouncing backwards and forwards, chasing the summer between Sydney and, and Vancouver. But also, uh, I got to spend time uh, in the the west coast of the states and also also Mexico. Oh, another thing that's like really funny about I- interacting with with Americans. Uh, so, a common Australian greeting is you know you, you say you walk into a, a store. And and you want to buy something, and you just say, um, "It's like, hey, how are you going?" And and the thing is that most Americans not only do they can they not hear the words, even if they could, they wouldn't understand what it means. Like, what by by train, by bus? <laughs> is that how you're going? <laughs> and so and so I had to develop a different greeting, and and I. I actually borrowed this from from this like computer game that I played when I was a kid. It's called StarCraft, and there's these yeah. like little dudes that you can click on, and all the like all the voices are American, and and then and one of them he'll, he'll just go, "Hey there," and I make sure I like roll the R. The R. Yeah, yeah, it was and, and American. Just so, and then people were like, oh, like people would understand that I was greeting them, which was great. But but then when I moved back to Sydney, it it stuck. <laughs> And I had, it took me about six months to unlearn it. Part of my rage. Excuse yeah. me. That's one of the greatest answers we've hey, ever had. Hey there. The show. <laughs> excuse me. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and what were you uh, going back to? Is uh, question number two? Um, your, yeah. Your fashion fashion picks. What do you got? The most absurd thing I ever owned. It was. A, interesting, but absurd works too. Absurd, yeah. Absurd. <laughs> Not even better. <laughs> that might be the British American thing, you know, and yeah. <laughs> or Australian. That might be the Australian American thing. So. Ooh, 
yeah. Cardinal sin there, Mark. Mark, <laughs> Mark, Mark, Mark. In my head, I so uh, corrected it. Okay. So technically, I bought this as part of a costume, but it was not a costume. It was a legitimate piece of clothing, and it was a a set of dark red PVC pants with black stripes and brass zips all the way from hip to toe and then black bondage straps. Ooh, nice. Winner. <laughs> Winner. It took, Winner. It took me, that, that hung around in my wardrobe uh, for way too long, like after, I, after I'd, I'd, I'd worn it. And it was just... It, it was a couple of years later because it was just like it was so so weird and so cool and and it was only a couple of years afterwards I was just like I I'm never going to wear this again and and I can I can give this to someone else who's going to appreciate it more than I do right now. <laughs> just picturing that with the hey there, <laughs> <laughs> it matches perfectly. <laughs> All right, one final spin of the wheel for a quick question from me. So let's see if it lands on me. And it did. It landed on me. Uh, my question is simply this, Tristan. Uh, if if uh, if uh, any of us either go back to or go to Sydney in the uh, foreseeable future, what is the one thing that a local Sydney dweller s- it like knows about a restaurant and experience something that the typical tourist would not know. Be be like, oh, dude, I'm taking you here. You got to go. Uh huh. Yeah, yeah. And you, and, you can't men- and you don't talk about icebergs. We all know about it. <laughs> um, it's it's sad that you you know about that place. It's not sad. Um, it's wonderful. They have a great breakfast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um. They, they do all right. But I think, yeah, one of my favorite places to, to take people for, for an experience like that is um, there is a, a mezcal bar that's basically a hole in the wall in the middle of the city, just like down the, the end of a laneway that looks like a good place to store. Like, and there's like large garbage bins and it's just... Were you going to say dead bodies? You were going to uh, say dead bodies. It's a good like, it, it, That could work as well. Okay. And uh, you didn't say no. I'm, I'm, didn't I'm, trying, say. I'm trying to do my part to give the Sydney Tourism Board a boost here. Look what you've done. Uh-huh. So this this little mezcal bar has. So they have this this kind of hand-picked uh, range of, of mezcals. That they're not just importing stuff. They uh, they they work with direct. It's it's kind of like the the single origin experience for mezcal, and I I've tasted some of the craziest shit at that little bar. Mm. And it's just mezcal, but it it the taste is just from another planet. And just there's so many different ways that that uh, that they make mezcal, and they take you through uh, kind of the manufacturing process of the of the different ones, and and they just have all of these like numbered bottles with like mystery mezcal kind of stacked up on the wall behind them. What's the place called? Ooh. Oh, Ken. come on. You, you gotta, <laughs> don't tease us like this. Wow. Across the world, land, looking yeah. for this place. I'm, I'm going gonna, gonna, to Google this. On the next episode of Fashion Show. Yeah. yeah, yeah it's, it's, okay. <laughs> Thank you. Sam. All right. It's, 
It's called Cantina OK, and it's a standing bar. There's not even any room to sit, and it's a, like a limit of 20 people, and it's, it's literally smaller than, than this office. So, which is small, by the way. So it's like, and, yeah. and you know, what a great name, by the way, Cantina. Okay. You know, I mean, <laughs> we have no problem filling 20 seats. It's okay. You know? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much for that. Uh, Tristan, how can people connect with you and style arcade if they need to do that? Yeah. Well, it's just stylearcade.com and we're all on LinkedIn as well. Oh, you went.com, huh? How non-Australian of you. <laughs> I always well, see the .au until, until uh, you know, there's a certain tipping point. And they're like, ah, I guess we got to go .com now. Yeah, yeah. It's, you know, people get ideas in their head about, of about you know, being something more. And the .au has just got to go. <laughs> good point, right, good well, point. A big thanks to Tristan Hoy, the CTO and co-founder of Style Arcade. Thank you so much for taking the time all the way from across the world in Australia to join us. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. Best of luck to you. Continue. Looks like you have a bright path ahead. We can't wait to see how Style Arcade grows and blossoms as in, in the months ahead. Uh, so thanks, thanks a lot. Uh, that's it for this episode of Fashion Issue Business, everybody. We sure do appreciate you listening. It means a lot to us. Big thanks to Simeon Siegel for uh, joining us uh, behind behind the scenes, I guess, this time. You know, I'm the host, Mike. Thank you, sir. Love being here. Thanks, guys. And for Pub and Ball. Yeah, shake it easy, guys. I'm Mark Rako. Have a great day, everybody. Bye-bye. This has been Fashion Is Your Business. Produced by Mouth Media Network. Copyright 2020. Keep in touch on Instagram and Facebook at Mouth Media Network. And find prior episodes at fashionisyourbusiness.com and wherever the best podcasts are found. Thank you for listening. This is Mouth Media Network, the business of being heard.